Roz Lewis is a Melbourne writer originally from New Zealand. I'd describe her as voracious and fearless. She'd probably describe herself as a mother, a hippie, a survivor and an activist. Roz is here today to talk about love, playwriting and how to live happily ever after. Roz Lewis, welcome to 15 Minutes of Fame. Thank you, Noel. Now, Roz, we're going to talk a little bit about your life journey and eventually get on to um, your play, which you've been working on for some time now. But first of all, what were you doing in New Zealand before you came over to Australia? I was living in a place called Napier, which is a beautiful seaside city in New Zealand in the North Island. And I was working in a private practice, my own private practice as a psychotherapist. And I was teaching at a university in Auckland, Auckland University of Technology and a Master's of Psychotherapy. Was that always a passion of yours? Psychotherapy? Yes. Um, No, I came to that through being a trauma survivor myself, uh, through escaping domestic violence many years ago. I became interested in how people heal and many of us in this profession are what I would call the wounded healers. So attracted to a profession because we've worked on our own healing and this was certainly my case and I became interested in helping others, particularly in the area of trauma which has been somewhat of a specialty for me. Of course, of course, in Melbourne, we, we worked together on, on a piece of yours, which was about domestic violence, mm. which I want to get onto um, later on in the podcast. But a question I do, I do have for you. When I think about you now, um, the person you are in Melbourne, maybe not the person you were in New Zealand, I would think of you as an activist. Is that how you think of yourself now? Absolutely. Quite a good term that I uh, learnt recently because I'm just embarking on a PhD in creative writing. And my supervisor talked about creative activism and that really fitted with me. So I do consider myself a creative activist in my writing, whether it's poetry, memoir, creative non-fiction, I really fit with that term. But but you weren't always an activist. I mean, in New Zealand... No, not in that way, no. How would you have described your yourself before you, you arrived in Australia? Because I know in Australia, you've really come out as an activist in Australia, mm. haven't you? Who was Roz uh, originally in New Zealand? Well, originally, um, I was born in a, a middle-class family. My father was a lawyer. I rebelled and became a hippie in the 70s. And I guess I would always describe myself as a seeker, as someone that searched. And I was always interested in the deeper things of life. Then, you know, I married and had children, and that took up a lot of time. My first marriage was a very violent marriage, so I spent many years recovering from that. But I guess through that, um, I would identify as certainly a mother, then a grandmother, but also a developing interest in feminism. So I would have described myself eventually as a feminist with your writing when you started writing poetry was the poetry um because i I believe you started writing poetry Mm. first yeah was the poetry a form of therapy kind of at that point at that point when i started writing i was involved in a christian church so i was writing a lot about god and healing in that domain which and and I think differently now but in what way do you think differently now well my spirituality is different I don't adhere to a set doctrine Uh, I would describe myself as a deeply spiritual person but not in the conventional sense 
And do you think, uh, and we'll get on to domestic violence later on, but do you think your experience with domestic violence has changed the way you think about God? Well, my experience with domestic violence is what led me to a belief in God because I, interestingly, used God as a kind of therapist. I, I didn't have a belief in God before that, but when I fled my first marriage, there was no therapy available then, there were no safe houses for women so it was a bit like I projected onto the face of God who I needed God to be so God in that way became a companion for me that helped me get through at that stage. And when you think of God now as a feminist do you see God as a male or do you see God as a female or do you see God genderless? Yes I think it doesn't matter to me whether I think whether God is male or female or the sense of the divine so kind of I'm open and I certainly don't see God in the way that I used to. We first met the Melbourne Writers Social Group many many years ago and I and one of the first things I think that uh, that drew us to one another was <laughs> was was our, uh, our love of therapy and talking about therapy I remember us talking me talking about therapy and you talking about therapy I, I've always uh, I've always real I well I didn't realize and this until I had therapy that writing and getting all your thoughts out mm. is very therapeutic and I was kind of self-healing do you think you've you've self-healed sure yeah, yeah. I've done lots of writing in that way um, when my re- a recent relationship broke up I kind of wrote my way through that I wrote a lot of poetry and also at the hospital where I work I actually run a writing as therapy group um, which assists people struggling with mental health issues to express themselves so I think writing is a very safe way to um, to express oneself however there is a difference between using writing as a way of of you know like a therapist couch or revenge prose to be writing for what do you mean by effective. revenge prose yeah where you're well a, a, a typical example might be prince harry's memoir at the moment. Oh, is that a revenge prose <laughs> well oh, i'm wow. wondering about that you know where the writer just wants to write to take revenge on someone and that can inhibit i think the effectiveness of the writing so are you saying that if you uh, write for revenge there's no therapy there's no, well, there's I think no I, healing at all? Oh, I think it is, but not if you're writing for other people to read. Yeah. Oh, so, I, de- I definitely think it's therapeutic for oneself, but if you're trying, as I am in the PhD in creative writing, to create a book, it has to be, I think, the craft of writing has to be more prevalent than just a kind of a cathartic experience. It has to be more than you just being cathartic. So because of your experiences uh, with domestic violence in New Zealand and then coming over here and finding your voice um, with a little help from me Mm. via a show that we worked on together called Love Kills, which says everything, is, is Roz very different from the person she was in New Zealand as a Melbourneian now? Well, I, I'll always be a New Zealander, but I feel very much embraced by Melbourne. I love Melbourne. I've learnt to really appreciate all that Melbourne has to offer. Am I very different? I think my journey of growth has, has just been a progressive one, and I feel I've done lots of personal growth in Melbourne, become more confident, felt more empowered. I think doing that show, Love Kills, um, that was the first time I spoke publicly about my experience of domestic violence. And whilst that was very 
I felt very vulnerable doing it. It was also very empowering for me to put some of that experience in the form that I did with the play that you invited us to be part of. Of course, um, I remember when I first read the piece um, that you'd written for Love Kills, which was called Dark Moon, if I remember correctly. I, I immediately knew that this horror story that I was reading was part of your life. In, in handing it over to somebody else who didn't know anything about your life like that, was that did that feel brave for you to do? Yes, it did feel brave and courageous. And I think particularly in the area of domestic violence that happens in the sanctity of the home, that it's very brave for women to talk about it, to talk about the, absolute, the actual reality of what it feels like. And so my purpose in doing it you know, fragile as I felt, was that I believe if one person can have a voice, it can help others. And domestic violence is still such a problem globally uh, and, and still in Australia and New Zealand. Women are still getting killed and seriously injured. And so I guess it's become a passion of mine, fueled by my own experience to try and make a difference in that area. Uh, I know we've talked about this. in, in Which is the creative activism part, yes. I know we've talked about this in private. My mother was also a victim of domestic violence. Thinking about domestic violence, you know, from a very young age, I could never understand why she stayed so long. You know, it, as, as a kid, I didn't understand it. And as a teenager, I didn't understand it. Why do women stay in domestic violence situations? Well, that's a really good question and a question that people ask a lot. In my case... It was a matter of life or death and I fled after three years and I'm so glad that I did. But what, I mean, what happens is that fear just can cripple women uh, because women in domestic violence will develop post-traumatic stress disorder. Back then in your mother's time, it wouldn't have been understood back then. Also, economic reasons. Uh, it might be that women don't have the economic means to leave. Particularly is the feeling of fear, and it's not just fear, it's absolute terror. And a violent partner will often threaten death if a woman leaves. Uh, women have children to look after, and it's very scary. So there's so many reasons that women stay. And it's not because they want to, it's because they're terrified. Do you think women today still stay with their partners mm. as, as much as, I don't know the statistics mm. of this, but um, as they would have years ago? Because I, I seem to, um, I don't remember as a kid, a lot of divorces years yeah. ago, whereas I think there's more divorces now. So are women getting out? Sooner I, th I think women are getting out sooner because there's more help and resources available. However, also the same loyalty binds can happen. Because remember, perpetrator of violence isn't violent all the time because they can be charming, they can be nice people. So women, um, this is the loyalty bind that can happen. Plus also, I believe the the emphasis that society puts on marriage, monogamy, long-term partnerships as a kind of, you know, people are praised if they've been together for 50 years, no matter how miserable they've been. Do you believe in monogamy? I don't disbelieve in it. I mean, I think if that's people's choice, that's fine. I, people make lots of different choices now. But I think there's still a... Um, a privilege given to long-term monogamous relationships, whether that's for spiritual reasons or for what society says, you know, the entrenchment of that belief. 
So therefore, it's very hard for women to feel that they've failed, as it were. So even that can keep them in a, in a relationship that's toxic because they just want to try and try and try. Ros, do you remember when you were in New Zealand, you said you were with your partner for three years before... The violent, you... the man, yeah, husband, yeah, he was a yeah. husband, yeah. When you were with him for three years, do you remember that day you left, yes. you decided to to go? Absolutely. What do you remember about leaving on that day, how difficult it was? And was there anything that stands out in your mind or, you know, something that you can't forget about that day of walking out and taking your child with you as, children, as you did? Two yeah. children, yes. Um, well, I remember I was terrified and I had the help of two neighbours that helped me escape in secret. Um, I was terrified because I knew that my rage was so great that maybe I would harm my children because I had so much pent-up rage, and that frightened me, and I knew I had to get out for the sake of myself and the sake of my children, either me being seriously injured or killed, or my children. So I enlisted the help of two neighbours that had witnessed a violent episode some months before and they helped me escape. So it was in secret, I was terrified, I was under seven and a half stone. It took a, a huge thing for me to escape. Is there anything you missed about your partner after Nothing. you left? No, no, not at all. I was, no, I was just grateful to be out, to be away. So, you know, your whole life is in a lot of your writing. What about poetry? Do you think poetry should always be beautiful? And I know I've read some of your writing. Um, and, and how do you work domestic violence into poetry? Because most people would think of poetry in a flowery, Shakespearean kind of way. Well, this is one of the challenges I'm learning about in the PhD in creative writing and a question I'm asking. How do I write confronting material that people can that is palatable for people because domestic violence isn't pretty whatever way you look at it so that is something I'm working on the craft of writing I think even writing about tragedy and serious issues like domestic violence one can still write beautifully so I would hope to be able to write well and beautifully and still articulate the truth of domestic violence that people can tolerate and that's the skill, I think. How do you write about the ghastly stuff that happens in domestic violence and create, help people's awareness, but how do you write in a way that they won't turn off it? Do you write with a person in mind, or do you write hoping to, to speak to hundreds of women? I think I write hoping to speak to hundreds, of, and not just hundreds of women, but men as well, and people that haven't been affected by domestic violence. So I'm hoping in my writing to not only support and encourage people who are survivors of domestic violence or who are currently in domestic violence, but also to raise, you know, consciousness raising, which is a good old feminist term, um, of people to understand more the dynamics of domestic violence and why, in your original question, women can't just get up and leave. Ros, what makes a good feminist? Well, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> this is only my opinion. In your opinion. opinion. In your it's opinion. only my opinion. It's interesting because I've, I've always identified as kind of a moderate feminist because, you know, men are still, I still have best friends who are men, so I like men. And I don't think the feminist movement where women were anti-men is helpful. I think that's counterproductive. Like, 
two wrongs don't make a right. However, I have to confess that some of the younger feminists now, I kind of envy their anger and rage, and I wonder whether I should be angrier than I am, that I'm too nice. But then again, uh, there's another feminist writer called Bell Hooks, who I've recently been introduced to, who describes that, you know, patriarchy isn't... Yeah, that men also are very disadvantaged by patriarchy and misogyny, you know, that it's, it's um, and being anti-men or hating men doesn't help. So I think a good feminist, in answer to your question, is someone that's really open to understanding that, the bigger picture. You know, they're not just, even though the majority, uh, in research statistics, uh, the majority of violent perpetrators are men and uh, the victims are women. But I think it's helpful to also engage men in this discussion and engage men to also challenge the systems of patriarchy and misogyny. Here's a question for you. You mentioned Prince Harry earlier on. Yes. <laughs> We're just being introduced to that. Okay, you mentioned tip. Prince Harry. Who's wearing the pants in that relationship? Is it is Meghan wearing the pants or is Prince Harry wearing the pants? Mm. Who's in charge? Well, hard to tell because initially it was the thought, you know, the popular opinion was that Meghan was influencing Harry. But just seeing him in these little bit of interviews that are coming on the TV at the moment, he's either, he's full of resentment and rage and obviously, as someone said, quite damaged. So I think I think it's been interesting that a lot of poison has been thrown at Meghan as the female, when actually I think Harry, you know, has his, um, certainly has his stuff. So I think this will come out more fully in, in these interviews he's doing in the memoir. I mean, it's kind of, well, not astonishing really, but I, I have to say the other thought I had about this is that, I mean, he's writing this memoir, I, I feel a bit, um, it's not doing those of us that are wanting to write non-fiction a memoir a favour because I have no idea how well written or poorly written it is, but the deep, yeah, I as I say, I haven't read it yet, but I, um, I'm i worried that Prince Harry's memoir, Tell All, just will put a bit of a dampener on any of us that are attempting to write a memoir. So if you wrote your memoir, would it be a tell-all memoir? Would it, would it cover everything, you know? I wouldn't, because ideally, uh, the, well, my understanding of the definition of memoir is you're focusing on a, a certain focus, not telling your whole life like autobiography is your whole life. So my memoir would be, you know, probably focusing on on the trauma of domestic violence, how I recovered, how to become more empowered, how to still have those events in your life, but still find a way to live a full life. So that's probably what I would write about. Now, the, the play you're working on, which is which, which is a, either a one-woman play, we think it might mm. be, could be three different women, mm. uh, is called, um, it's called Happy Ever After. And um, I'm just going to give, give you, read something I read from your, your website. And I want, I want you to explain how this might make its way into your play, Happy Ever After. This is what you wrote. Deep sadness sits at the base of my belly always. Hmm. Is that in your play? When they go to your your piece called Happy Ever After, Hmm. will they experience that particular statement in some kind of way? Well, I think so. I think um, deep sadness sits always at the base of my belly is very much the legacy of trauma. 
not just mine, but I work with a lot of trauma survivors, whether or not it's domestic violence or war or, um, you know, bullying or traffic accidents or, you know, the the legacy of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, certainly affects one's state of happiness. And so I think when I wrote that, I was trying to say it's never very far away, this feeling of sadness. It's not that it consumes me, but it is a legacy, if you like, one of the tentacles of post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay. And I think it should be in my play. (laughs) Well, there you go. I've I've given you an idea for your play. Roz, if you had to sum up your life as a mother, as a hippie, as an activist, as a survivor... And a grandmother. And a grandmother... What, what would that sound like in terms of your writing? Like, how would you describe yourself now? Encompassing everything that you've been through, how would you describe yourself now? Are you still a mother, hippie, survivor? Yeah? I think so. I think, I think I am all those things. You know, being a hippie, I, I don't think we ever quite lose that flavour of hippiedom, which was on the edge, always not quite status quo. So I think that's been true in my life. The other gift I think I've embraced from hippiedom is this willingness to be open-hearted, to look at the deeper things of life, to believe in love and connection with others. So you still believe in love? I I believe in love and connection with others, yes, in all kinds of relationships. So none, none of your experience with domestic violence has wiped that idea of falling in love out of your your, your system completely? It certainly has at times. It certainly has scarred my my trust in love, yes. Uh, so how does one regain that very slowly over time? So I think, but I do think the woundings and the scars of that kind of trauma hang around for a lifetime. It's just, as someone said to me, as I said to someone, trauma is trauma. One never gets over it. However, um, I've learned to have more resources with which to manage triggers when they come. And this is what I teach to others too, that don't expect, there's never a place that you fully arrive and heal. But you can learn more resources with which to manage some of those woundings when they occur. What would you say to anyone listening to this, be it a man or a woman, because men can be in, in you know very negative situations as well, what would you say to anyone listening to this out in the big world? What advice would you give them about their situation uh, if it's not a healthy situation? Well, I think um, certainly find someone you feel you can be honest with. That's really important. And this is what's difficult in domestic violence. It's not that, you know, you can't go to have coffee with your friend easily and say well you know my partner beat me up last night or my partner raped me last night which by the way is another area that I'm focusing on in that the level of sexual violence within domestic violence isn't easily talked about and that's very real so that I would say that to them find someone that you can really trust to be open with and obviously if they're still in that situation to talk to a professional if they can I mean, once people are out of that situation and are healing and recovering, very important for for people to be gentle with themselves and their recovery. And the other thing is try and be discerning about the people that you open up to about how things really are. 
Uh, there's a lot of um, what I call toxic positivity around, which I don't think is helpful. Um, talking about that word sadness, I don't think melancholy is given a good enough rap. I think finding people that don't expect you to just get over things and you're able to have friendships and heart-centered friendships where people really get what it is that's happening. Do you know, I have this, I have this belief, and this is just my experience, that people are sympathetic for about 12 weeks. Regardless of uh, what disasters ha has happened to you, mm. people have sympathy for 12 weeks, and after that, they are, whether you've got the equipment to get on with things, yeah. they are saying, get over it. We don't want to hear about exactly. it. Has and that been your experience? Well, yes, I've certainly experienced that in my life. And when I um, run therapy groups at the hospital I work at or in private practice, a common conversation that many people have, they say this is the only safe place I can really say how it is. Out there I can't, which is such a sad indictment in our society. And the reality with trauma and recovering from trauma is that sometimes people need to tell their story over and over again to heal. And of course that can be tiring for other people, and especially for people that are into the let's just be positive brigade. <laughs> so that's why I say it's important to find those people that can have a sense of understanding and compassion that if you've been through something traumatic, it's better out than in. So talk, talking about it is really helpful, as long as it's with the right people. Roz, I think we're reaching the end of our, our podcast together. Your play, Happy Ever After, is getting a reading. Yes. Do you know the date? I do. Yeah, yeah. March the 9th. And and March the 9th, where is it on it? It's, on, it's put on by the Knack Theatre. And the reading will be at The Last Jar, 616 Elizabeth Street, Melbourne. And it's called Happy, Happy Ever, Ever After. After. Okay, so if, you, if you'd love to watch Roz's play and hear it being read, she's a fantastic writer. So definitely go and have a look at it. Roz, this is it. This has been your 15 minutes of fame. Thank you, Noel. I really enjoyed talking with you.